Dr. Saad, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, fellow Montrealer, I'm really excited. Uh, obviously, I you know I've, I've seen interviews of you on on, on Jerogan and, and various different podcasts that I really admire, and was really looking forward to this conversation. And obviously, you've got a, a new book out called The Parasitic Mind, and it's been about a decade now since your previous book before this, The Consuming right. Instinct. So this is like uh, I guess like a big. Uh, chapter in in your life in terms of this this new book that's coming out uh and i'm excited to talk about it it, it feels like I, I we just talked before this you know i was i've been currently in brazil but you know i've been kind of stepped aside from the western world for a while i would say the past five to seven years lived majority of my time in south america and bits in europe here in la and, and new york somewhere there um but it's almost like I've been separated from this PC culture that we live in, you know, the postmodernism, as you call it. And what is going on here? What, what has happened in the past five to seven years? How has it accelerated at this pace in these recent three to five years, it seems? Right. Well, you know, it's, I mean, one way to analogize it is with, say, cancer, right? I mean, it, it starts off with one cancerous cells cell, and then, uh, you know, you, you bat your eye, and now you have stage four cancer. It metastasizes. And so I think what's happened with these dreadful ideas is that they started trickling in within academia. You know, depending on which idea pathogen we're talking about, it could be, you know, up to 70, 80 years ago. But for most of them, I would say about 40, 50 years ago, some of these truly parasitic ideas started being spawned on in academia. And then it takes a while for them to metastasize to outside of academia. And now they constitute sort of accepted wisdoms within all halls of life. So it's not, you know, people think that the ideas that I'm talking about are largely restricted to some esoteric department in the social sciences or the humanities, but ideas have consequences. Eventually the people who, the students who took those courses where those ideas were promulgated become our prime ministers, become our politicians, become our heads of HR, become our Hollywood moguls. And so now you see these dreadful ideas in every nook and cranny of society. So that so it's a slow process, but eventually you wake up and you're in the abyss of infinite lunacy. Why do you think it starts from the core at the academic level? What is it about the academic level that makes it the initial starting point? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So there are two ways to answer this. I mean, one sounds facetious, but it's actually quite profound. And, and I think George Orwell had, had commented something similar. But I often remind people that it takes intellectuals and academics to come up with the dumbest ideas. And the reason for that is because a lot of the academics are perfectly decoupled from the downstream effects of their imbecilic ideas, right? So they can pontificate within the a sterile world of the ivory tower without worrying about what are the consequences of the of their stupidity so the, one of the reasons why somehow in a business school one of the reasons why the business school or the engineering school hasn't been quite as parasitized by some of these idea pathogens which i guess we'll talk about uh, at some point soon uh is because you know you can't build bridges if you're an engineer using postmodernist physics you can't build a 
uh, economic model or a consumer choice model using postmodernist econometrics. And therefore, you can't espouse nonsense in places where your ideas will be tested against reality in a rigorous manner. So the, the reason why these dreadful ideas originate in academia, but more, more specifically in many of the esoteric fields in academia, is because I can pontificate without worrying about the consequences of my ideas. Right. That, that's what it seems to come down to is that most... It comes down to incentives, right? Like people can say anything these days on Twitter. They can criticize someone. I mean, there's even accusations of, of, of you know, molestation and rape and all these different things that are horrible if it actually has happened. But there seems to be just accusations in some certain cases. And there's not a lot of consequences from that. And it, it's it's this kind of this push and pull in terms of, the beauty of the internet has exposed so much information, but it's also the kind of the double-edged sword that comes with any of these innovative technologies that, that come in. And it seems like we're kind of facing these uh, more harshly in the last three to five years or so. Indeed. Uh, you know, as someone who is very much on social media, I can assure you that you you truly have to have thick skin. I mean, if, if, you, if in any way you have a minimally fragile personality, one that can expose your the fissures of your personhood, you're going to you're going to be eaten alive. And in a sense, uh, it's regrettable that you have to have such a strong, uh, you know, thick skin, because a lot of people then decide, you know what, I have a lot of important things to say, I think, but I'm not going to throw my hat into the ring because I know what happens to those. So never mind being canceled the way so many people are, are being canceled today. Just the the emotional toll that it takes on you to constantly, uh, you know, be exposed to this kind of nonsense. Now, I try to the best of my ability to, you know, avoid reading comments and so on. But sometimes you want feedback, right? If you just appeared on a show and, you know, you think it was a great conversation, you can't help but be curious and go check the comments because you want to hopefully see that people really enjoyed your chat. And then, of course, even though 99% of the comments will be incredibly encouraging and glowing, we've evolved brains to ignore the 99% and we only focus on that 1% that is trashing us, right? Uh, that's just part of how the architecture of our minds. And so it really is a tough, uh, you know, endeavor to, to be a part of. But you know what? Luckily, I've got a strong personality so I can handle it. That's right. A very strong personality. I mean, for people that don't know your, your, your background, it's certainly not like you grew up with roses and rainbows in your childhood, right? <laughs> you grew up in the Lebanese yeah. Civil War and yeah. you were one of the last groups in, you know, amongst your family uh, and, and the people in, in Lebanon to escape to Montreal. So, I mean, is a part of you like you look at all this and you, you kind of see the, the, the craziness of how you know, these PC cultures are based on this childhood that you grew up with, with like, you know, chances of dying at, at any moment. Like, does this all seem kind of silly to you at this at a certain point? It does. And that's why I'm so indignant about the fragility of the Western mind, the, the current zeitgeist in the West, because, you know, and it, it's not it's no coincidence that many of the people, not I mean, some of the people who are at the forefront of fighting against some of this lunacy originally hail from really rough backgrounds because 
we've had the opportunity to sample the totality of available societies that exist around the world. And we recognize, or, or I'll just speak for myself, I recognize that the West is really an anomalous reality, right? The, the history of, of humanity is not peppered with societies that are akin to the West. If anything, it, it truly is an outlier that we've been able to create such wonderfully flourishing societies where individual dignity is uh, lauded and, and so on. So to come from the environment that I come from in Lebanon, for those of you who don't know who are listening to the show, um, we are Lebanese Jews. We were part of the last group of Jews that had steadfastly refused to leave Lebanon. But then when in the mid-70s, the Lebanese, the ex extraordinarily brutal Lebanese civil war broke out, it became impossible to be Jewish in Lebanon. I mean, it became impossible to be anyone in Lebanon, mm. but it certainly was a lot rougher to be Lebanese in, in that part of the world, uh, to be Jewish in that part of the world. And so once you're exposed to true victimhood, to true trauma, then in a sense, it's almost a well, not almost. It's a personal insult to have someone whining about their gender pronouns and hiking is racist and walking your dog is racist and, uh, you know, everything is racist. Everything is bigoted. Boo hoo hoo. I'm a victim because it actually trivializes true stories of victimhood. Now, in a sense, though, my true victimhood story allows me to be protected from the hordes of faux victims because once they pull out their victimhood cards, I always hold a higher hand in victimology poker. I'm always the gold medalist in oppression Olympics. And so I turn their grotesque calculus for winning arguments against them, right? So if, if the strength of my arguments are not sufficient to win you over, then let's play your game of victimology, in which case I shall win. Mm, yeah, someone like yourself that's dealt with insane amounts of hardship and even you know death threats and all these things you kind of hard to break it's almost like you have this invincibility card right so no matter what's thrown at you particularly verbal words in many cases you know especially in these age uh, it's, it's kind of hard to break in many senses um obviously i i would imagine these things are not happening the, the, the stuff that we're talking about the death of the west by a thousand cuts the things that you mentioned uh, these are things that are not really happening here in, in, in Brazil. Certainly, there's a form of it. Uh, I, I would imagine it's not greatly done in other parts of the world. Why is it so concentrated, you think, in places like the U.S.? Does it come down to like the Maslow's heart give needs in some ways where like people have food and, yeah. and shelter that they need? Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's – look, uh, if you are facing a famine uh, – in Ethiopia, you probably don't have too much energy to worry about the proper gender pronouns, mm -hmm. right? So that's that summarizes the point that you've made. But th there is actually a mechanism that I describe in the parasitic mind. Uh, there's a whole section I call it the homeostasis of victimology, and it might be worth uh, explaining it because it speaks exactly to your point. So homeostasis is basically uh, so your your uh, your uh, thermostat in your room is a homeostatic system because you set your desired uh, temperature. I want it to be 23 degrees Celsius. And then the system will take readings and adjust accordingly. If it's if it falls below, it heats it up. If it falls above, it cools it down. Well, many of our physiological systems in our bodies and even some of our psychological systems are very much rooted in a homeostatic mechanism, right? So if my blood sugar 
goes down, this triggers seek food. So I can resolve that, you know, that low blood sugar level, right? Uh, so I took this idea of homeostasis and I argued that in the West, what we have right now is instead of the thermostat being set at a right temperature, we have to set the victimology threshold at a certain point so that we can then argue that we live in a grotesque patriarchal society where there are gang rapes happening everywhere, toxic masculinities everywhere, white supremacies everywhere. Now, when I set the threshold at that point, if it turns out that I can't find evidence that supports that threshold, then I will alter the definition of what constitutes a case of victimhood so that I can reestablish the equilibrium, right? So it no longer, so rape is no longer the actual physical rape. Now, if you leer at a woman, it is visual rape. If you catcall her, it's linguistic rape, right? So we will, and there's a very similar process, although he didn't use a homeostatic argument in the way that I did. The Australian psychologist, uh, his name escapes me right now, but it's in the book, talked about concept creep, right? So for example, when you talk about trauma, childhood trauma, what you end up doing is you keep expanding the definition of what constitutes trauma so that pretty much we've all been traumatized. So the guy who grew up in Lebanon who was afraid that he was not going to live until three o'clock this afternoon because hordes of insane militia were going to take us out as Jews and execute us has suffered the same trauma as someone who repeatedly doesn't get picked first to play in the schoolyard soccer team. He suffered exclusion trauma. So he suffered trauma as a child and I suffered trauma. My trauma was I was afraid to be beheaded. He didn't get picked to play soccer, baseball in elementary school. We're both children of trauma. Mm. So what ends up happening in the West is we've created a zeitgeist where there is nothing more important in the hierarchy of status than being a victim. This is what causes Jesse Smollett to not be sufficiently satisfied in being an actor who's making whatever, a million dollars an episode as a BC level actor. That's not enough. For me to truly be appreciated in my circle of BS Hollywood people, I need to have a victimhood story. If I don't have one, I will manufacture one. And so in a sense, that answers your question as to why in the West we are engaging in this orgiastic uh, for victimhood. Yeah. Well, to, to I guess like to, what some people may say in terms of the victimhood, uh, we'd love to get your thoughts on this, is if someone that was not picked first in gym class doesn't really know the pains or what it feels like to be a victim in the, you know, the Lebanese civil war and to that extreme, in their mind, could it not be that their pain or their what they're going through is uh they because they don't know what to compare with is at similar levels in their own perception than you know compared to what you may have gone through yeah i got you so look so what you're basically saying is you know if you don't know what to contextualize a reality against then maybe you think you have been victimized but of course a well-functioning person first of all, has to have the ability to contextualize, right? Mm. And secondly, you have to have parents who are able to contextualize. And 
and and teachers who are able to contextualize for you. So when you create a society where everybody receives, I, I hate to, to use a cliche, but it, it truly is accurate. Everybody received the participation trophy because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I used to be a competitive soccer player heading to, to play professional in Europe. We didn't get participation trophies, right? We played the whole year. And if you weren't champion, you didn't get anything because life is competitive. Com life is competition and competition is life. So, uh, yes, in some cases, you take your personal, uh, you know, injury as though it is sort of a fatal one because you don't know any better. But if you don't know any better, then those around you should be able to create the anti-fragility that you that is required of you to be a well-functioning individual. Right. So I talk very briefly about anti-fragility, uh, which is. Of course, uh, Nassim Talib, my, my good also Lebanese friend, uh, wrote a great book on anti-fragility, right? So yeah. just very briefly for your view, listeners who may not know, you want any system to be anti-fragile, meaning that you don't want that if you just, uh, you know, uh, activate the most minimal of stressors, it is brittle and breaks apart, right? You want to have a mechanism whereby it can be resistant to stressors, right? Uh, so... And of course, it's not as though the, the concept of anti-fragility is not something that existed long before Nassim proposed it. So when you say, for example, squeaky doors don't break, that adage is exactly speaking to that, right? It is basically saying that as long as you get little knocks and it doesn't kill you, right? That which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. All of those mechanisms are basically arguing that for us to be well-functioning adults, we have to be anti-fragile. And maybe if I can give you an example from evolutionary medicine, uh, it is one that I actually discuss in, in the parasitic mind. So in evolutionary medicine, there is a wonderful hypothesis called the hygiene hypothesis, which basically posits the following. If you take children who suffer from many autoimmune disorders, say respiratory ailments like asthma, and you contrast the children who grew up with pollutants in their environments on a farm with a lot of pet, pet dander, or children who grew up in very, very sterile environments. You have an OCD set of parents who clean everything as though your house is a surgery room. Well, it turns out that kids who grow up in this in the surgical sterile environment are much more likely to have respiratory ailments because the immune system expects to be challenged. It expects to be triggered so that it could eventually build up the, the, the optimal Im immunological response. And so I argue, so I take that principle and I analogize this to critical thinking, right? If you create perfectly sterile echo chambers, as we now see in universities, you're creating a perfectly anti-Darwinian system because your brain expects to be triggered by opposing ideas. The pollutant in this case is not the pet dander, but it is the opposing idea. If Sean Kim challenges me and I now have to build a defense against his challenge, next time I speak to someone else, I will be better prepared in my argumentation. And so it's a real tragedy that we are creating these fragile systems when we should be promoting anti-fragility. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting point. Um, and, and I love Nassim Nicholas Taleb uh, and the work that he's put out. The, the, the thing in terms of like a psychological, from a psychological perspective, at, at a fundamental, it seems like the humans are just susceptible to bullshit and we yes. fall for a lot of these different things. So 
from like an evolutionary perspective, is there a reason why humans are so diff- so bad at sniffing yeah. out this stuff? Yeah, a great question. And there are many ways to answer it from an evolutionary perspective. I'll actually start from the most fundamental place. Mm. Not only are we susceptible to bullshit from another party. So you try to bullshit me and I may fall prey to your BS. The, it originally starts with our own self-deception bullshit. In other words, we are incredibly uncanny, un, uncanny in our ability to self-deceive. So why is it, what would be the evolutionary reason why we fall prey to our own BS, never mind other people's BS? And the, the solution to this incredible question comes from Robert Trivers, who is a, he still is alive, he's a evolutionary biologist, some argue one of the greatest biologists since Darwin, which is saying a lot. So Robert Trivers proposed a, an evolutionary-based theory on self-deception, which I think your viewers will be blown away by it. So here it goes. Uh, when you and I are chatting with each other, we are engaged in an evolutionary arms race. You are trying to manipulate me to suit your best interests, and I'm trying to listen to you, watch your cues, to see any cues that you might emit of duplicity, right? And actually, that's one of the arguments for why we evolved a very big prefrontal cortex. In other words, the, the reason why we have such big brains is in part due to something called the social intelligence hypothesis, which is that the, the greatest threat that we faced in our evolutionary history, other than you know predators and pathogens, is conspecifics, other members of our species, because we're a social species who are going to set all sorts of traps for us. And so there is an evolutionary arms race, very much like how a host and a parasite are engaged in an evolutionary arms race. You and I in our ancestral past, we're, we are in this tangle where you're trying to deceive me and I'm trying to pick up on your deception. Now, what is a mechanism? So if you are BSing me, usually there are certain facial signatures that will occur, micro signatures that suggest that you are lying to me, right? So if I'm now trying to lie to you because of this internal conflict, because I know that I'm being duplicitous, you might be able to pick it up in me. Now watch this. What if I make sure that I believe the bullshit that I'm about to give to you so that I now shut off any possibility of emitting the signals of duplicity? In other words, as George Costanza said in an episode on Seinfeld, something that I actually discussed in my first book, the 2007 book, Evolutionary Basis of Consumption. Remember, Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. And I, when I when I heard that, I thought, aha, that's exactly Robert Trivers' evolution of self-deception, right? In order to deceive you, I have to first deceive myself. So there are all sorts of really cool evolutionary dynamics to explain precisely why we can be infected by bullshit, even our own bullshit. Yeah, that's fascinating. I've read somewhere, or maybe it was a video, that the way to pass a lie detector test is once they ask you some basic questions, that's the normalcy of your rhythms and all that stuff. And whatever questions ask after, they'll compare that. So one way to trick that system is you answer the basic questions in a rhythm that is not normal to how you would answer what is your name or what's your gender. 
Although that's a confusing thing now these days as well. Exactly. <laughs> so who knows? Maybe they won't ask that question these days. But that's kind of like the way to 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 fool that. And and I I would imagine like psychopaths, it just wouldn't work at all. Like light detector tests would just be off the door for for people that are psychopaths. I, I was just gonna say exactly that, which is so it's either what you said as a strategy or just be a psychopath. <laughs> Because one of the difficulties of lie detector tests and precisely why, you know, there, I mean, there are several reasons why they're inadmissible in a courtroom. But one of the reasons is because if you are actually using it on a, see, the psychopath doesn't experience that internal conflict, right? Uh, there's, there's a great, I mean, we're, we're going on a tangent, but I, I think yeah, it's, yeah. it's a point to make. Uh, there's a great uh, chat that I think is probably available for viewing on YouTube between a forensic psychiatrist by name of Park Dietz and a a killer, an actual killer. This is not, this is a documentary. You're actually seeing the real people. His name is the Iceman. He's since died. The Iceman, so it's, I think the, the, the documentary might be called something like The Psychiatrist and the Iceman. Mm-hmm. Well, the Iceman is the a gentleman who had grown up, you know, in some rough streets. He was someone who, you know, had both an antisocial, you know, personality, quite psychopathic, quite sadistic, so that if you ever cross him on the street and you engage in a personal slight, right, you you stepped on his shoe, but you you know you didn't apologize properly, then he would literally escalate it to the point of killing you because you've you know injured his his honor and so on. Well, after he had done quite a bit of damage on the streets, uh, his reputation preceded him all the way to the mafia, who then came to him and said, hey, would you like to be a, a hitman for us? And, uh, you know, sometimes in life you end up, you know, falling in exactly the job that you were meant to <laughs> oh my hold. God. And so he became a hitman for the um, the mafia. And the reason why he uh, was known as the Iceman is because he would, when he would kill someone, he would, uh, you know, put them in ice. So it became more difficult for the police to know exactly uh, to, to date when the you know, the, the murder had happened. In any case, at one point, so I'm going to link this all back to the yeah, blind yeah. stuff. So at one point during the, the their conversation, uh, uh, Park Dietz, the forensic psychiatrist, wants to kind of gauge his childhood because you, what you often hear that serial killers uh, in early in their childhood usually exhibit three behavioral signatures. Uh, they, bed, they wet the bed onto a late age uh, they set things on fire when they're very young. Here goes Aunt Linda's house in the in the foothills, and uh, and then they also engage in animal cruelty with a increasingly higher order taxa. So you know we begin with the spiders, we move to the squirrel, we then get to the dog, and then eventually we graduate to the humans. And so Park Dietz wanted to ask him some questions about his childhood. He said, "So did you ever, you know, when you?" growing up, do anything to animals. Uh, and so they got to a story where he he's describing what he's done to puppies, which, you know, to most pers- person, they'll hear this, even if you're not an animal lover, which I am, uh, they would, you know, they would recoil in horror. And so he's saying some really unbelievable things he's doing to these puppies. And Park Dietz asks him, and so how did you feel when you did that or after you did that? Now, of course, you know, the answer should be, my God, I was regretful. I couldn't believe. He goes, well, what do you mean? I don't understand your question. He wasn't able to even place himself using theory of mind wow. in the shoes of the guy who's asking him. He did not, what do you mean? What did I felt? I felt nothing. 
Why? Why? Well, I don't. So then, Park Deeds has to break it down for him. Well, you see, when people usually commit such things, they feel. So he's actually explaining to him the concept of a conscience. Well, oh someone God. who cannot relate to why he did this or that to puppy should cause that reaction is going to pass the lie detector test with flying colors. Oh my God! I mean, I guess the good thing is that because these. Psycho, these specific types of psychopaths, they're not self-aware to even understand or put themselves in the shoes of someone that is, you know, normal, I guess, in this case, they're quite easy to catch if you just ask them the right questions, right? Like the, men like the mention of the animal things. But the most dangerous seems to be guys like Ted Bundy, who is actually very, very self-aware and he yes. understands the mindsets of the top investigators and lawyers or judges and he's able to play both sides in at the most extreme level. And I imagine those guys are, are the ones that are very hard to catch. They are. And I mean, in the case of Ted Bundy, oftentimes these serial killers also suffer from a sense of megalomania and grandiosity and, of course, narcissism. And so in his case, his downfall is when, if you remember, when he tried to defend himself in the final trial that led to his death penalty conviction because he's smarter than any lawyer, because he can defend himself, because he could charm the jury and the judge just like he charmed all of the previous victims. So in a sense, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult uh, balance to make because on the one hand, his charm allowed him to amass all these victims, but he went too far on the inflection curve of that, of that curve and he overestimated his abilities leading to his execution. Mm, got it, got it. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think that was an important rant either way. Um, <laughs> to, to kind of circle back in terms of yep. why humans are so susceptible for, for follow for BS, is there a way for us to train ourselves to be able to sniff it out better and maybe certain practices? You know, one of the things that I've heard is like, because humans are so susceptible for confirmation bias and we're always seeking information that, we makes us feel good and it's only been accelerated by social media algorithms. One way to kind of counteract that is to try to read things that you know you don't believe in yeah. uh, or that you don't necessarily, you know, maybe you're scared that it might be true, uh, that you may have avoided in the past and, and try to find information that you're counteracted mm -hmm. with. Is there is there any truth to that or is there any other ways that you found that can help us, you know, stiff out more BS? Yeah, I mean, great, fantastic question. So there are different ways to answer this. So one way would be to say, let, let's look at more autonomic mechanisms. So you go to a party and you interact with a bunch of people and this one person, you walk away saying, you know, that guy gave me the creeps. You can't exactly verbalize why it is, but your brain is always on the lookout for these micro cues. So whatever your gut is telling you in this case it's probably because your brain has picked up some, uh, you know, uh, sub, not sub, possibly subconscious cues. You know, the guy is not paying attention to you. He's got shifty eyes. He's looking around the room to see who else he could speak to that might be someone more beneficial to him. Right. So sometimes if I ask you, but why did you dislike this person, Sean? You won't be able to verbalize why, but you develop this holistic impression of that person uh, based on these micro cues that are very telling. So at that level, I would say, in many cases, just trust your instincts. If, if, if something feels like BS, more often than not, it likely is 
precisely because we've evolved hopefully the capacity your ancestors or mine would not have survived if they weren't able to navigate through these minefields but on a higher order level so i'll answer it in the context of of, of the parasitic mind you know in describing all of the idea pathogens that have infected the universities you know postmodernism and cultural relativism and social constructivism and militant feminism and biophobia and so on uh it i thought it would be incomplete to just describe the disease describe the pandemic of the human mind but then not offer you a solution which is at the heart of your question because then i'm it's as if i'm the physician you come and i tell you here's your disease and you say well okay so how can i solve this doc? oh i don't know i just told you have a disease <laughs> yeah. and i can't tell you anything sorry good luck right and so i made sure in the last two chapters in chapter seven and eight to exactly try to offer a solution in the way that you asked. So let's do first maybe chapter seven, uh, which talks about how to seek truth. Truth is the opposite of bullshit, right? So I am in answering your question in this way. So in some cases, a truth is axiomatic. So for axiomatic means it is part of a mathematical axiom. So for example, in rational choice theory, we have the following transitivity axiom. If I prefer car A to car B, and I prefer car B to car C, it must be that I prefer car A to car C. If not, I am, I am violating the transitivity axiom. So some truths are embedded within the system, but other truths, how many genders are there? Do men weigh more than women? Or anything that is empirical, cannot fall within an axiomatic uh, system. And so how can I establish that something is veridical, is not bullshit? And so I propose a incredibly powerful epistemological tool, which I call nomological networks of cumulative evidence. And it's a mouthful, so I'll, I'll break it down. So if you think back of Charles Darwin, more than 150 years ago when he published On the Origin of Species, the data that he collected to demonstrate the veracity of his theory did not come from running a study with 30 undergrads uh, in at Ohio State and then publishing a paper, as would be typical in a psychology scientific paper. And I'm not denigrating that. But look now how much more he did. What he did is he got data over many decades through geology, paleontology, comparative anatomy, uh, animal husbandry, biodiversity, ecology, so that he collected data from many, many different sources, which when you put it all together, it made his theory unassailable. Mm -hmm. So I argue for a similar epistemological tool, which, as I said, I call nomological networks of cumulative evidence, because what I'm going to do in trying to prove a position to you that's anti-bullshit is I'm going to drown you in a tsunami of evidence. So it, this might be abstract to the listener, so let me, if I may, give a concrete Please. example of how, okay. So let's suppose I wanted to prove to you, Sean, that toy preferences are not socially constructed. In other, so the typical social science argument is, well, the reason why we have the gender roles that we end up having is because, you know, parents are these patriarchal sexist pigs who teach little Johnny to play with the blue truck. They teach little Linda to play with the pink doll. Aha, that's how we start this never-ending cascade of sex-specific roles, okay? So if I come along and say, well, that's not really true. As a matter of fact, there are clear biological-based mechanisms that explain toy preferences, okay? So this is the statement that I want to uh, defend. 
I want to defend against the bullshit statement of toy preferences are socially constructed. How would I go about doing that? So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to try to come up with data across time periods, across cultures, across methodologies, across disciplines, all of which will solidify my position. Examples. So I could turn to comparative psychology, which is the field that looks at other animals, and I could show you that rhesus monkeys, vervet monkeys, and chimpanzees exhibit the same sex-specific toy preferences. Now, already, that is devastating to the social constructivist argument. I am showing you three other animal cousins that is, exhibit the, sex, the same sex specificity of toy preferences. But I'm not going to stop there. That's just one box of my nomological network. Next, I'm going to get you data from developmental psychology, showing you that children, human children, who are too young to be socialized, meaning that it couldn't have been due to social construction, are already exhibiting those sex-specific toy preferences. So now I've gotten you developmental psychology data, comparative psychology data. It's already fatal to the opposing argument, but I'm not going to go on. Remember, I'm building a tsunami of evidence against you. So now I'm going to get you data from pediatric endocrinology. There is a disorder called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is an endocrinological disorder that if a little girl suffers from, her behaviors become masculinized. Her morphological traits become masculinized. So therefore, we could take little girls who suffer from this disorder and show that their toy preferences become like that of boys. So now I've gotten data for you from pediatrics that points to this. I'm not going to do the whole tree. I'll do just one more example. I can get you data from, because you might say, oh, but that's all in the West contemporary data. Well, I could get you data from sub-Saharan tribes that points to the same thing. I could get you data from 2,500 years ago where they studied ancient Greek funerary monuments at, where children are depicted and the children are depicted boys playing with one type of dog toys and girls playing with the other type of dolls and uh, toys in exactly the same way as today. So by getting you data from across cultures, across time periods, across disciplines, across frameworks, across dependent measures, I then have this more than even a triangulation of evidence so that it becomes impossible for you to argue against me. Now, you might say, okay, well, that's all great for fighting against bullshit, but who's got the time or effort to sit and build these nomological networks? The reality is, if you really want to be convincing, if you want to operate in the battle of ideas, you have to do your homework. So when I go on shows that have 10 million downloads, uh, or uh, if I go in to give a talk in front of 800 people, 798 of whom are really hostile to what I'm going to say, I walk in with the swagger of someone who's already built the nomological network. I know what I know. Now, on the other hand, when I don't know something, I walk with complete epistemic humility. If you ask me a question about well, how, what do you think about the legalization of marijuana in Canada? And I'll say, you know what? I just haven't built the necessary nomological network to answer that question. And so I'm not well equipped to answer it. So yeah. there is no other way to fight against bullshit than to inoculate yourself with all of the correct information that protects against the bullshit. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Well, out of curiosity for, for, in, in a situation like that, obviously, when you're on a show, it's unless you're, you know, with another guest and maybe Joe Rogan is moderating it and you're arguing with someone from the other side. Uh, in, in a situation like that, if someone is able to provide you credible, uh, you know, advice, uh, sorry, uh, evidence, arguing the other side that 
perhaps is just as credible? You know, where do you go from there in most cases? Right. So it really is a, the totality of evidence. So if you if you are a, an honest uh, pursuer of truth, then as you're building your nomological network, you might very well stumble on information that is contrary to the nomological network that you're supporting. So then it becomes a totality of evidence. So imagine if you have two thresholds. If I reach the upper threshold, this suggests that my hypothesis has been uh, demonstrated to be vertical. If I reach the rejection threshold, the opposite threshold, that demonstrates that my hypothesis or the argument that I'm building is nonsense and has been refuted. And so it becomes a race. By, by the way, what I'm just describing is is what I is is the was the uh, focus of my doctoral dissertation. Mm. So anyway, so so it becomes a race to see which of the two thresholds is reached first. Now, in that process, as you said, some of the information might take me in the opposing direction from my threshold of acceptance. I simply incorporate that honestly within the totality of evidence that I'm building. But again, the key word is totality. So if I've got 600 pieces of evidence that I have amassed, of which two are contrary, 598 are in favor, then I think we've proven the point. So this is how you handle that. Right. I guess the purpose of here is that you're saying what you're, the way you come across in terms of having an opinion is that you're able to think in verse principles, take take data and actually provide a solution to the problem that you're addressing. Whereas this kind of reminds me of a joke of an employer that complains about an employee that says that, hey, you're coming to me with problems without any solutions. And then the employee goes to the employer and says, but he didn't really tell me what to, what I should do about it. Right. So like people love to make these complaints, but they don't actually take action for themselves. Yeah. And uh, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I think I think this idea of thinking in first principles is very interesting. And it kind of circles around this idea of what Elon Musk said about um, first principles, because for him at a fundamental level, he has to seek truth because what he's dealing with is building electric cars, self-automated using AI that could kill lives and spacecrafts that's going to be, you know, spending billions of dollars. So if he gets one thing wrong and for him to ignore truth at a fundamental level and not think of first principles, the consequences are severe. And to, you know, to circle back, it seems like people don't have that incentive to think of first principles because if they, the, the consequences for not thinking it isn't, blowing up a spacecraft, it's probably just deleting their tweet after a moment, which is a click which, of a button. Which speaks to your earlier question when you asked why did these uh, pathogens come out in academia? And if you remember, my answer was because you can't build a postmodernist bridge. You can't build a postmodernist econometric model to understand consumer choice. Mm. Uh, Elon Musk cannot build a spaceship or a you know self-driving uh, car using postmodernist AI system. Yeah. Therefore, he is wedded to truth and reality. And so he, it, by the very nature of what he does, he is partially inoculated against these mind viruses and idea pathogens. So that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, and, and I guess to, to follow up on that, it might be similar to this idea of like finding out how to be less susceptible to BS. But is there, for people that want to seek truth at a fundamental level and think in this way, because I think it's such a powerful way to think that 
isn't natural to human nature, but those that do have the superpower of being okay. able to really put things into fundamental levels. Is there a way for you? Because uh, it, it seems like you clearly think in these this matter of first principles. Has it been something, an experience, or, or some sort of training that you've done that has helped further you to think more in first principles that people can benefit from? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I think much of who we are is really an interaction of our genes and our environment. Uh, and I actually briefly discussed this in chapter one of the parasitic mind. So if you were to ask me, you know, are leaders born or made? Well, a bit of both. But depending on the phenomenon, it's a bit more one or the other. The reality is the nature or nurture dichotomy is really a, a false one because much of who we are is an inextricable mix of the two. But the, the reason I'm saying all this is because when you're asking, well, you know, is there a way that led you to be able to think like that? Well, part of it is really just the unique combination of genes that make up who God sad is. I'm just pathological in my pursuit of truth. I only care about belonging to the tribe of truth. Why is that? For the same reasons that I have green eyes. That's just the unique combination that makes who I am. That said, the specific personal trajectory that I have taken in my life, hence the environment, also has contributed to solidify that bent of purity, right? Of mm. purity of thought. So, for example, having studied mathematics and computer science, uh, strengthened that position. There is no room for postmodernism and social you know, bullshit in, in mathematics, computer science. And as a matter of fact, that's what was uh, made it so beautiful for me to study that because it catered to my purity bubble, right? You write an, an algorithm and it either provides you, given the inputs, the right outputs, or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, within this self-contained world called the algorithm that I've written in code, I have to find where the bug is. And now I find that bug and I clean it and now the world is pure again. So in a sense, I already came with that bent into the world and I solidified it through, you know, the the, the trajectory that I've taken in, in, in school and in my education and in, in my work as an academic, uh, which, by the way, sometimes it it makes being an empiricist. Right. So an empiricist, right? I collect data and I test the hypothesis. That's one of the things that's so scary when you are a scientist because the data doesn't always cooperate, right? I mean, yeah. when you're writing an algorithm, you know, it's either correct or wrong. But sometimes you have a great hypothesis. You work two years on a project, you spend thousands of dollars, you collect the data, and then the data comes in and you're, you know, you're shaking your hands. What? It didn't work? Well, mm. guess what? That's like, and sometimes I get graduate students who, I noticed they're very hesitant to launch the study because as long as it is in the hypothesis stage, it's all nice. We have a great theoretical narrative. But once you throw the dice and you don't know what's going to happen. So and that's part of, by the way, being just intellectually honest. Sometimes, you know, science is messy. You think you have a great idea. You test it and it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think this kind of leads to. Chapter eight, where you talk about the honey badger. Well, I guess yeah. for people that don't know about honey badgers, I certainly didn't. I had to look it up. Uh, <laughs> what What is it about honey badgers that has to do with being able to stand your ground and speak out more? 
Right. So that's, remember I said earlier that I have sort of two chapters that deal with solutions. One is a much more technical one. That's the nomological network one, chapter seven. Chapter eight is a call to action. One call to action of which is activate your inner honey badger. So the idea there is that a honey badger is the size of a small dog, and yet it could withstand an attack from six adult lions. I mean, it's insane, right? Why is that? Because it is so extraordinarily ferocious and fierce so that when the lions see that ferocity, they say, well, this, this is too painful. This is too much. We can go get a meal elsewhere. And you can actually just go on Google and enter six lions and a honey badger, and you will see a honey badger doing exactly what I just did. It's really beyond belief, right? Yeah. Well, what I argue is that people have to have that honey badgerism, if I can put it that way, when defending their first principles, which you mentioned earlier. If I have a set of principles that I think are really well articulated, well reasoned, can be well defended, I don't need to be hysteric. I don't need to be emotive. I simply need to stand my ground, just like the honey badger does. I don't recoil. I, I'm not shaking in my confidence. I'm self-assured about what I'm saying. That's, mm -hmm. by the way, one of the reasons when people say, oh, but I shouldn't maybe tempt fate, but people say, how come, Professor Saad, you're not cancelable? I mean, you say more, you know, uh, rough stuff on Twitter in a morning than most people will say in a lifetime. Well, because I'm a honey badger. I, I, my ducks are in order. If you come after me and you miss, I'm going to come after you. I'm going to come after your ancestors. I'm going to come after your dead ancestors. There is no side in you. <laughs> That's going <be> exactly. <laughs> so, so, so the reality is that I believe in the principles, right? And I'm willing to defend them. Most people, first of all, are shaky in terms of the confidence in their beliefs, right? So, I mean, I get people who write me emails. This is in the 21st century where they say, Professor Saad, I'm wondering, so what is the bio what is this state of the literature, scientific literature? Is it only women who menstruate? Is that a right thing to say or am, am I a transphobe? Okay, when a functioning adult in society in the 21st century has to write me an email, unsure of whether the fact that only women menstruate is a fact or is transphobic, that's not a good thing, right? That's that's exactly capturing the zeitgeist that we're living under, mm -hmm. right? So have self-assuredness, do the, your homework, and never, ever back down. So that's that's one call to action. Another one is don't, don't subcontract your voice to others. So what a lot of people will write to me and say, well, you know, I'm not some fancy professor with a huge platform. You know, I'm not Joe Rogan with this huge, you know, the biggest platform in the world. Yeah. How can I affect change? Who cares about me? That's nonsense, right? Because that's like saying uh, trench warfare. Why should I be engaging in trench warfare? There, there are carpet bombing, carpet bombs coming, right? War happens. And on many levels, it happens at the microscopic level, it happens at the macroscopic level. So you could affect change when your professor says something insane in the classroom and you disagree with, challenge him or her politely. Yeah. Someone says something on Facebook that you disagree with, you're out at a pub and someone says something insane, challenge them. So every time that you walk away from an opportunity to debate and the potential to change someone else's opinion, truth has 
died a bit at that moment. So the fact that you don't have a huge platform doesn't mean that you shouldn't be engaged, your voice matters. The fact that you don't have Joe Rogan's platform doesn't mean that you shouldn't be engaged. So don't don't subcontract your voice, don't diffuse the responsibility of this fight to others, be a honey badger. Those are some of the very quick fixes that can help us redress the situation very quickly. Yeah, now for, for people that might be wondering kind of a, around this this gray area where when when you know whether it's it's some of the, some of the smartest CEOs or 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 thinkers generally have a tendency to change their minds when presented with new information and obviously most people are not so stubborn enough to just constantly stick with their opinions when they're presented with new information for someone that is trying to stand up more and to stick their ground, how do they balance that? How do they balance that level of conviction that they have while also knowing that they, you know, that also also trying to balance that ability to change their minds when presented with new information? Yeah, that that's it all boils down to intellectual honesty, right? So if I have now built the requisite nomological network that makes me think that my position is unassailable it's provisionally unassailable, meaning that I'm always open to the possibility that somewhere, somehow, someone's gonna come with a bigger tsunami of evidence that's gonna drown me. I'm always open to that possibility. That's the exact difference between scientific truths and revealed truths, right? Religion, so which is one form of revealed truth, the form of revealed truth, is dogmatic. It's dogmatic how? Epistemologically, it says, this is true because it's true, because it says so in my book, therefore it is true because my book is true, right? So it's a perfect, beautiful tautology that just ends up you know, feeding itself of it's true because it's true because it's in my book. It's revealed truth. I, it's not, it is impervious to falsification. Whereas science is provisional so that things that were true 300 years ago, we today laugh at them and think they're no longer true because science is truly humble in that Yes, I walk around with the bravado and swagger of someone who thinks that my position is true, but I always have the capacity to. So there is no magic recipe. You simply have to recognize what I just said and be open to having your opinions changed if information comes in that suggests that you should. It's as simple as that. Beautiful. Well, Dr. Saad, um, I want to respect your time, obviously. So I uh, want to close this off. So for, for people that... Want to learn more about Dr. Saad, I would highly recommend to check out the book, The Parasitic Mind. We'll link that below. Uh, where can people find you on social media, website, and so forth? Sure. So I have a website, gatsad.com, where everything you want to know about Gatsad is there. I have a YouTube channel, The Sad Truth, S-A-A-D. I also have it on podcast form now. Uh, on on uh, Twitter, you can find me at Gad. Sad S A A D, and I also have a public Facebook page. So there are no shortage of places where we can hang out. So I hope you check me out. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, also, by the way, I I was about to like quote something from Noam Chomsky, but then I just saw an interview that you you're not a big fan of Noam Chomsky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not. Do you want me to give you why? Yeah, give you give you a quick quick snippet. Yeah. So in in the in the book and. And in other venues, as you said, in interviews that you might have seen, I talk about the six degrees of Noam Chomsky, which is a more is a, is a specific instantiation of a more general epistemological trap 
which I call six degrees of focosality. So for example, if you are a radical feminist, then you could link everything to the patriarchy in six or fewer causal steps. Why did the Amazonian frog die? Well, in six or fewer causal steps, I could link it to toxic masculinity. Well, Noam Chomsky uh, is a king of this kind of cognitive trap and that he's able to link everything to the US military industrial complex. And that annoys me, right? Because life is more nuanced. Uh, it's not true that every dictator is this noble person, whereas the US is the purveyor of all evil. I just don't like that uh, language that he engages in. I find it silly. And I find also that he maybe lacks epistemic humility in that, as I said earlier, when I know something, I walk with the assuredness of someone who knows, but then you can ask me tons of questions. And I'll say, as a matter of fact, yesterday I was on a show where someone asked me, could you explain how you would apply evolutionary psychology to study the evolution of human consciousness? To which I answered, if I could answer that, I wouldn't be talking to you. I would be collecting my Nobel Prize in Stockholm. <laughs> I have no idea how to answer that. In other words, yeah. I didn't construe it as I am the fancy professor who's got an answer to everything. On the other, on the contrary, I, I'm humble enough to say, you know what? I have no clue how to answer the question. No one has a clue. And I feel that Noam Chomsky maybe could once in a while take an epistemic humility pill. Can you separate the art from the artist? In most cases, or is this is this one of those situations where it has to come together? Meaning what? Like in the context of Chomsky, or what, what Chomsky? Do you mean? Yeah, like can you separate you know the, the 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 work that he's done with kind of the beliefs that he has and kind of separate the the beauty? It of depends that. in which domain. So I think uh, even though some linguists who are more well, more versed on me on the issues, although I think I'm pretty well versed, you know, his universal grammar stuff was certainly some brilliant stuff. I think that's great. But, you know, when he argues, for example, I'll give you one example of the lunacy. He argued that the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia committed their genocide because it was a delayed post-traumatic stress response to the carpet bombing of the U.S. in Vietnam. So let me repeat all this, right? So the Khmer Rouge, who were insane, you know, communists, right, uh, who are, you know, the killing fields, right? I don't know. I think they killed two, three million of their own people. They had no personal agency. It's not them who were diabolical and evil. You have to link it to the U.S. So they were so traumatized by geographical proxy, right? They were they were close to Vietnam. The U.S. was engaging in indiscriminate bombing. That post-traumatic stress disorder, that's not very nuanced. So stick to your universal grammar and stop spewing bullshit when it comes to geopolitics. Beauty, beauty. Well, not the traditional way we end these podcasts, but we would expect nothing less from you, Dr. Saad. So thanks very <laughs> much for making the time. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.